bit of housekeeping up front. Spotify subscribers, I'm still figuring out a way to get the back catalogue of shows to you in a fashion that does not break the entire podcast. Which, turns out, is more difficult than you might think. I'm aware of the problem, but being aware of a problem and being able to fix the problem are two very different things. So, if nothing else, I actually understand politics a little bit better now. So please, patience, if you will. You will have access to the entire back catalogue of bonus shows at some point between now and the end of the world, and I am trying to expedite it, but also, I'm nearly 40 years old, so I need to be able to use the old man isn't good with tech card at least once in my life, and I'm playing it now. Also, while we're disclaiming, this show you're about to hear doesn't really have a point. So don't go looking for one. There are a couple of moments where we might accidentally stumble onto a theme, but that wasn't really intentional. This is a bit of a meandering, scenic journey through history that ultimately doesn't really amount to much, except that it's a fun bit of trivia. It's fun and it's entertaining, which I guess should be enough, but I have very high standards. Maybe I'm just being a bit of a wank here. Fun should be enough. So this is what happened. The next main show is going to be about the legendary Japanese swordsman Miyamoto Musashi. One of the primary sources for Miyamoto Musashi's life is a book by the name of The Lone Samurai by William Scott Wilson. And it's a good book. I very much enjoy this book. This is not the first time I've read it. But one of the claims that Wilson makes in The Lone Samurai is that the World War II battleship the legendary Yamato series super battleship, the Musashi, was named after Miyamoto Musashi the man. And the problem with this claim is that it is categorically untrue. Which is yet another reminder to always verify your sources, because sometimes people are full of shit. Or, far more frequently, Hanlon's razor here, people get things wrong because history is murky. But still, it's always important to double-check. So yeah, that was jarring to read, because I happen to know through my own research that the battleship Musashi was not named after the man Musashi. There's a province in Japan called Musashi, where you'll find a little city by the name of Tokyo, among others, and that's what the battleship was named after. The whole thing is a coincidence. But I'm willing to give Wilson a get-out-of-jail-free card here, because it's an honest mistake, and it's one that is very easy to make especially regarding the Yamato series battleships, for reasons I will get to near the end of this show. And in doing research on Miyamoto Musashi, I was, of course, reminded of the battleship Musashi. And that gave me a whole bunch of ideas and notes, and now I need to get them out of my head. Long-time listeners will know that sometimes I need to do a show not for any sort of legitimate artistic reason, but simply because I need to get the ideas out of my head because they're driving me insane. This is one such time. So, like I said, there isn't really an overarching narrative here, although I do try and fudge one. It's more just a litany of things you're probably going to find kind of interesting and fun, and hopefully that is enough. All right, let's win us a trivia night at some point in the future. So, if we're going to be talking about World War II Japanese battleships, the most obvious starting point is, of course, going to be the 19th century American gunsmith Samuel Colt. Because history is a rich tapestry. 
One of the advertising slogans for the Colt Manufacturing Company went as follows. God created men. Samuel Colt made them equal. Which is actually pretty morbid when you think about it. The idea is that with the invention of the Colt single-action revolver, it didn't matter who you were, how big or small you were, old or young, fit or feeble, rich or poor, anyone in the world could now murder anyone else with impunity. We're like the bullies of the world, you know? We're like Jack Palance in the movie Shane, <laughs> throwing the pistol at the sheep herder's feet. Pick it up. Samuel Colt himself liked to frame it as freedom or protection or manifest destiny or some other nonsense, but that's what it means. Samuel Colt socialized murder. Which the humanitarian in me is appalled by, but the socialist utilitarian part, which is much larger, tips his hat to Samuel Colt here. Well played, sir. And it's a neat bit of marketing, sure, and we're still saying it today, but it's not exactly true, is it? It's broadly true. But historically, not so much. Because what happens when you get someone with a Colt pistol against someone without a Colt pistol? That's not very equal at all, is it? The person without the pistol is at a very clear disadvantage. And while Samuel Colt himself would have dearly loved to sell every man, woman, and child on earth a firearm, or more, that wasn't the case. Which brings us to a different firearms inventor. This guy most certainly did not make everyone in the world an equal. Quite the opposite, actually. He pretty much split the world in two with his invention, between those who had it and those who did not, and there are still wars being fought today because of this invention. Ian already knows what I'm on about, but for normal people, I'm talking about Hiram Maxim and his eponymous Maxim gun. In 1884, Hiram Stevens Maxim invented a new type of gun. It was a recoil-operated gun. If you're somewhat familiar with firearms, you'll know how big a deal this was, because pretty much every firearm ever since has been recoil-operated. What that means is that you fire a bullet, and Newton's third law being what it is, Hiram Maxim figured out a way to harness the energy from a fired bullet, and instead of it going off into the ether, he harnessed that energy and put it back into the gun. This kinetic force ejects the spent bullet cartridge, loads a new bullet in, moves the magazine along, and cocks the hammer back so that you can immediately fire another bullet, and the process continues until you run out of bullets or everyone is dead, whichever comes first. So what I've just described is a machine gun. Hiram Maxim invented the machine gun. And the world changed forever. Because there were now two types of people. Those who had the Maxim gun, and those who did not. And any people who did not have a Maxim gun were now irrelevant. What they wanted no longer mattered. The machine gun was that big a deal. You could have an army of the most badass motherfuckers on the planet. I'm talking warriors trained from birth in the art of war. People who spent their entire lives practicing taking the lives of other warriors. Trained in the sword and the spear and the bow. Peerless in hand-to-hand -hand combat. An army that at any other point in history would have wiped the floor with pretty much 
any other army on the planet. People like the Apaches and the Zulus and the Spartans, the samurai of Japan, the baddest of the bad, the deadliest warriors on earth. And you could take an army of 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 of these warriors and you could throw them against one guy with a Maxim gun and they would lose. They would be wiped out. Utterly. It doesn't matter how much Kung Fu you know. I know Kung Fu. A machine gun is better. And a shout out here to the criminally underrated film Equilibrium, which had Kung Fu with guns. I quite enjoy that movie, even if most people don't. It's about a nihilistic future in which everyone is zonked out on benzodiazepines all the time. They call it a dystopia, I call it Tuesday. But that's just me. Alright, back to the Maxim gun. In 1893, in South Africa, the Ndebele warrior tribe sent 1,500 troops to raid a British fort. The Ndebele were some badass motherfuckers. They were like the Zulus, but without marketing or Michael Caine. The centuries report Zulus to the southwest. Thousands of them. These dudes were scary. You did not want to fight them in hand-to-hand combat. They were deadly. The Indabele assembled 1,500 of these psychotic murderers and sent them at a British fort to have a quick word with everyone about colonialism. The fort was defended by five soldiers with five Maxim guns. 1,500 screaming warriors, Zulus, thousands of them, charged over the hill and 1,500 badass warriors died before they reached the walls. The Endebele were wiped out to a man. It turns out that machine guns are just a little bit unfair. And a shout out here to Hiram Maxim too, because you can still see the Maxim gun in action right now. The Ukrainians are using them right now. How many inventions are still being used 140 years later? You have to give it to Maxim. He nailed that one. The Indebele incident, and many others like it, led the famous writer and poet Hilaire Belloc to famously quip, quote, Whatever happens, we have got the Maxim gun, and they have not. End quote. Referencing there the rape of South Africa by European powers, and essentially saying, what are you going to do about it? And you can still see the ramifications of this today. The people with Maxim guns mainly the British, but pretty much any major European power plus America, they got to divide the rest of the world up between themselves and everyone else who didn't have machine guns, they could go suck a big fat dick about it. Look at a world map today. If you see a straight line anywhere, that was put there by someone who shot the locals to death with a machine gun in the latter days of the 19th century and then just went hog wild with the maps. Look up the Sykes-Picot Agreement sometime. This is why it's important to be on the right side of technology. Which brings us to the next jarring jump cut in this show. Brace yourselves for a quantum leap. We're going to Tokugawa, Japan. When Japan was in its Edo period, 
which is the setting for the next main show, the Tokugawa shogunate decided to shut Japan down. Nobody was allowed in or out. This happened kind of gradually, but by the mid-1600s, Japan was completely isolationist. Nothing enters, nothing leaves. It was the Thunderdome. And they did this to prevent foreign influences from corrupting the purity of Japanese culture, which I guess they accomplished. Because for over 200 years, Japan remained in a kind of stasis. However, what they didn't really think through was that one of the biggest things exposure to other cultures nets you is any new technologies that the rest of the world might have invented. They missed out on that. Mid-19th century Japan was still identical to mid-17th century Japan. Think about how much the world changed for everyone else in that period, 1700s to 1900s, and how much Japan missed out on. Which is when we fast forward to 1854. That was the year that the United States of America decided that they would rather like to trade with Japan and to use Japan as a port for repair and resupply in the Pacific and fuck whatever Japan thought about it. The US has never been keen on asking. So a fleet of American warships, under the command of a guy named Matthew Perry, Come on! No, not that Matthew Perry, a different one, although they were kind of the same level of funny, a fleet of American warships sailed into Japan and said, Hey, guess what? You're open for business again. Let's get cracking. And the Japanese were not too keen on that. The Shogun said, I have thousands of samurai, the deadliest warriors in the world, ready to cut you down the moment you come ashore. And Matthew Perry, not that Matthew Perry, said, What makes you think I need to come ashore? Naval guns have come a long way in the last 200 years. See those samurai there? Now see the smoking crater of torsos where those samurai used to be? Here are the terms of the deal. I recommend you sign it. You need to keep up with technology, or else you're going to become the colony of people who did keep up with technology. But, perhaps even more importantly, you need to make sure that the technology you develop is the correct technology. Because if you get it wrong, you're just as fucked as if you never had the technology in the first place. And this is another lesson that the Japanese in particular are going to learn the hard way. There's an old aphorism that goes that generals always fight the last war. Which is to say that generals, by and large, are pretty terrible at predicting the way the world is going to be, and instead focus their efforts on getting good at the last great advancement in technology or tactics, only to get completely surprised by something new. The world's military leaders got really good at artillery right about the time that World War I was all about trenches, meaning artillery was largely ineffective. They learned trench warfare right about the time that armies got super mobile, meaning trenches were useless. They got really good at mobile armies at about the same time as precision airstrikes made ground armies largely superfluous. You can still see this today. They always fight the last war. Russia made a huge investment in tanks, because everyone during the Cold War thought that tanks were going to be where battles were won and lost. By the time Russia got into an actual war, Technology like drones and javelin missiles meant that tanks are basically useless, especially in urban settings. Generals always fight the last war. This is a long way to go, but the context is going to be super worth it. 
But first, we're quantum leaping again. Engage Chronosphere. On the 10th of February 1906, the HMS Dreadnought launched from His Majesty's shipyard in Portsmouth. The moment it hit the water, it made every other ship in the world instantly obsolete. That's not an exaggeration. Every single warship in the entire world was now extinct. There was absolutely nothing that could even challenge the Dreadnought. Nobody else in the world had anything that could scratch it. At that point in history, February 1906, that one single ship could have conquered the world. Dreadnought means no fear. Nought, zero, dread, fear, fearless, you get it. And the HMS Dreadnought could be fearless because there was absolutely nothing in the world that could challenge it. Service to the Emperor. At the time, all other warships in the world were combinations of wood and light metals with armor over the squishy bits and a couple of big guns to make the boom. When the British built the Dreadnought, they made the entire thing out of armor. It wasn't an armored battleship, it was made of armor. And then they kept putting big guns on it. They put guns on it until it sank, and then they took a couple of guns off so it didn't sink. The Dreadnought was a huge deal. It outranged every other ship in the world by a significant margin, and even if another warship managed to close the distance, which was unlikely, there wasn't much it could do to penetrate the Dreadnought's armor. Basically, in 1906, if the British sailed into your waters with the HMS Dreadnought or any of its sister ships, you were now British. Deal with it. So everyone else in the world had to start scrapping their old warships and making dreadnoughts. Just to keep parity. Which they did. And the British had a huge advantage here because they already had these ships and everyone else was playing catch-up. And the British enjoyed dominance for a while, but the rest of the world did ultimately catch up. Fast forward ten years, and now we're halfway through World War I. This is when we get the famous Battle of Jutland. I'll probably go into Jutland in great detail one day, so I'll spare you all here, but Jutland is a big deal. It's one of the biggest naval battles of all time, and it's between Britain and Germany. Now, by this point, Britain had lost their technological edge. Everyone else was forced to match the Dreadnought, and they did. And we're actually past Dreadnoughts in this period, but that's kind of academic, it doesn't really matter. Britain set the pace with their big, armoured, heavy-gunned, fuck-off battleships, and everyone else, including Germany, built some of their own. So the German fleet has standard battleships in the Dreadnought style. Big, big guns, heavy armour, a whole lot of metal. The idea is that you output a shitload of firepower, and, hopefully, your armour can deal with any incoming fire. So you're shooting more than you're taking. That's the idea. And that's how everyone was doing it. Britain, looking to find their edge again, they went in a different direction. They innovated yet again. The British thought to themselves, yeah, heavy armor's good, but the best armor is not being hit in the first place. That's way better than being hit. So we're going to strip back the armor on our ships and make them a hell of a lot faster. 
That way, they can dodge incoming fire like an agent in the Matrix, but still output the same amount of firepower. And that's how you get a battle cruiser. It's a battleship with the speed of a cruiser. But to get that speed, you lose a lot of armor, which is heavy. And the idea is that you don't get hit at all, because you're going so fast. But if you do get hit, it's going to hurt. And that's what happened at the Battle of Jutland. Both sides are rocking the same amount of firepower, but the Germans are hoping that their armor will be enough that they can endure being shot, and the British are hoping that they're fast enough that they don't get shot at all. And, long story short, the battle cruiser was not a good idea. It turns out that it doesn't matter if your battle cruiser is faster than a battleship, if the gunners on the other side are good enough, they're going to get in some hits no matter what, and when they do, it hurts a lot. Now, the Battle of Jutland is kind of a draw for very complex reasons that we're not talking about today, but one thing it did demonstrate is the correct way to build battleships. Big guns and heavy armor are what you need. The British experimented, and experimentation is generally a good idea, but probably not in an active conflict. So the lesson from the Battle of Jutland is clear. You want your navy to have really, really big guns, and you want as much armor on your ships as you can handle before they don't float anymore. And this is a lesson that the Japanese took to heart. Sitting on the sidelines, kinda, sorta, we don't really have time to get into this period, but watching two of the world's greatest navies throwing down in Jutland, they saw that battle cruisers were out, What you need are really, really big battleships with as much armor as you can manage and the biggest guns ever dreamt of by man. So that's what they did. And it's a good thing that the historical lesson happened to be one of overwhelming force because that's what the Japanese were secretly hoping for anyway. You can call it a coincidence that the best option happened to be exactly what the Japanese military always wanted. You could call it wishful thinking. It's not really germane. Because the battle doctrine of the Japanese military at the time was known as Kentai Kesen, which sounds awesome in Japanese, but loses quite a bit of poetry in English, where Kentai Kesen is translated to Naval Fleet Decisive Battle Doctrine, which flows a lot less poetically. You forget! Zagdal was destroyed by the Crystal Space Devil! The Crystal Space Devil was once my brother, Prince Hiroshi. I mourn his loss, but what matters now is protecting Earth from that fruit armada. The general idea is that you want to win one battle straight up with absolute overwhelming force and knock the enemy out in a single blow. I fear our only option is thrilling space battle. Which actually fits in with the whole samurai killing with a single stroke thing that they had going on already. It's a really Japanese cultural trope, even if the actual strategy was written by an American, we don't have time. So in the spirit of Kantai Kesen, the Japanese came up with the idea of super battleships. So think of the biggest battleships in the world and dial everything up to 11. More guns, bigger guns, more armor, overwhelming force. Now it does need to be said that this wasn't exclusively a Japanese idea. The Germans will end up doing exactly the same thing with exactly the same results. But we're not talking about the Huns here. We're talking about Japan. The main reason for adopting this strategy, which, if it were chess, then it's the opening gambit of standing up from the table and smacking the other guy in the face really hard. The reason that this was the strategy from the Japanese side 
was because of America. The Japanese knew that they wouldn't be able to take the Americans on in a prolonged conflict. Nobody in the world can churn out as much shit as America can. The USA can just keep making more and more stuff in increasing numbers, and it doesn't matter how much of their stuff you blow up, they keep making more. That's America's true superpower, rampant consumerism. I'm not even joking. So the Japanese needed to hit them so hard at the very beginning that they didn't have a chance to bring their production into play. Hit them very hard and very fast and then force them into a peace treaty before a war can even start. That was the idea, anyway. We all know how that turned out. Again, something we're not rehashing today. But the idea is to hit America so hard at the beginning of the war that they just nope out before anything happens. There's actually an account of one Japanese admiral in his post-war memoirs lamenting that he knew Japan had lost the war when he saw the US ice cream ships. Yeah, ice cream ships. Whereas Japan were forced to ration absolutely everything in order to keep going, the US fleet had multiple ships dedicated solely to the production of ice cream for the troops. I'm not joking, I'm not making that up, that actually existed. All these ships did was make ice cream for the purposes of morale. So the American fleet had aircraft carriers and battleships and cruisers and destroyers and motherfucking ice cream ships. The Japanese were starving and the United States was deploying tactical Ben and Jerry's. That does a number on enemy morale. And you can still see it today. The United States military can deploy a strategic Burger King to anywhere in the world in less than 24 hours. Again, I'm not kidding. That's actually a thing. Instead of replacing the flag on the pole at an enemy capital, the US deploys a Burger King restaurant to demonstrate that your country is now American. Manny D, baby. Manny D. But that's the future. We're still pre-war and everything is coming up Millhouse for Imperial Japan. Everyone is underestimating them because the world was super racist, so nobody sees the Japanese sucker punch coming. So in 1939, the Japanese invest heavily in a new type of battleship, a super battleship known as the Yamato series. Now these things are fucking huge, so they only make two of them. The Yamato and the Musashi. And they were twinsies. Now, both of these ships were named after places in Japan. So the Masashi wasn't named after Miyamoto Masashi. So the link to the main show is very tenuous. But I've got all of these notes going to waste, so I'll hear no more complaints about it. Back in 1921, there was a global treaty called the Washington Naval Treaty, where all of the big players in the world agreed that there should be a cap on the size and deadliness of future battleship construction on the very rare chance that there was ever a world war again. God forbid. And naturally, everyone immediately set about violating that treaty. Nobody violated it as hard as Japan, but everyone thought that the Washington Treaty was something for everyone else. All of those other suckers can abide by the treaty, but not us. And everyone did that, it's just that the Japanese broke it better than anyone else. And I will point out that the terms of the Washington Treaty the United States and Great Britain were allowed to have roughly half again as many ships and guns as everyone else in the world because they were the ones who wrote the treaty, and if you didn't like it, then stiff shit. 
What are you going to do about it? Surprise attack a major port in Hawaii? <laughs> I'd like to see that. So nobody in this story is blameless. When the Yamato and the Musashi hit the water in 1940, they were the best battleships in the world. They were even more powerful than the German versions, the Tirpitz and the Bismarck. The Yamato series battleships could outrange and outgun any other ship in the world. They could destroy anything else in the water before other ships got into range, and even if they did somehow manage to close to battle, what are you going to do against that much armor? The Yamato would just sit there and tank any gunfire you threw at it, laugh, and then respond with overwhelming force. More to the point, these things were designed from the ground up to fight while being heavily outnumbered. The idea was that one of these things could take on an entire enemy fleet and emerge victorious. It tanks all of the incoming fire with its ludicrous amount of armor, and then responds with all of the guns. And I mean, all of the guns. There were so many guns on this thing. We need to talk about the guns for a little bit. Now, both of these ships were absolutely bristling with weapons. Cannons, smaller cannons, machine guns, anti-aircraft guns, torpedoes, things you expect on a World War II battleship. But the crowning glory were the Type 94 cannons. These were the main armament of the Yamato series. Both of the ships carried nine of these things. They had three turrets of three Type 94s. So that's nine altogether. And the Type 94 were, quite simply, the biggest guns ever built. These guns were 46 centimeter caliber. So they fired shells that were half a meter wide. These shells each weighed a ton and a half. So take a suburban car, put another suburban car on top of it, fill them both with high explosives, condense them so they're the size of Warwick Davis, and that's what the Yamato and the Musashi were launching at enemy vessels every single time they fired, and they could fire nine of these at a time. For contrast, the British ships of the era, and we know how Britain always does Navy well, the British ships were armed with 38 centimeter guns. And they thought that those were big guns, and they were, but the Japanese were rocking 46 centimeter guns. These are fucking huge! For perspective, each of these gun turrets, and these ships had three of them, each of these gun turrets weighed more than the HMS Dreadnought. The best way to think of it is that these Yamato series battleships were made of nine smaller battleships. The guns were so big that in all of the design specs and correspondence, the Japanese called them 40 centimeter guns to try and trick anyone spying on them into thinking that these were not somehow the biggest guns ever attached to a ship. The Japanese Navy essentially went into World War II with two Death Stars. The guns on the Yamato and the Musashi were staggeringly large. That's how the Japanese were going to do it. Overwhelming force, straight up. Straight out of the gates. Figure out how big a cannon needs to be to demolish an island, and double it. They had the biggest guns in the war by a substantial margin. 
And the great irony of the Musashi and the Yamato was that although they were designed to outclass any other ship in the world, and they had the guns to do it, neither ship ever got the chance to actually fire those guns. Because the Japanese had backed the wrong horse. As happened so many times in history, they had perfected the technology of the previous war. The Yamato and the Musashi were far and away the best battleships of World War I. They just happened to be 20 years too late. Where the Japanese military analysts had gone wrong was in thinking that battleships themselves would be in any way relevant in the upcoming war. The Japanese had crunched the numbers and extensively studied the issue, and they came to the conclusion that battleships were the way to go. And very rarely in history has anyone ever been more wrong. The Japanese had two battleships which were, frankly, pants-shittingly terrifying. They had two, and they were building three more. They comfortably outranged and outgunned anything else in the water. These ships alone could decimate entire enemy fleets. The Allies were terrified of these things, and rightfully so. But where the Japanese had gone wrong, and they did actually consider this option and dismissed it, where they went wrong was in thinking that everyone else was going to be doing the same thing. That this was going to be a battleship war. It was not. Because while the Yamato series could rain death from longer range than any other ship in the world, that wasn't really going to matter at all. Because there's something else that can lay down more firepower at a greater range much more accurately than a super battleship. The Allies had gone in a different direction. They were using aircraft. It didn't matter how long the range was on the Yamato's guns. Planes can fly a hell of a lot further. And it didn't matter how big the guns were because they couldn't target aircraft. They did get desperate enough to try... But big guns shooting at aircraft is kind of like trying to stab a fly with a spear. It's theoretically possible, and if it hits, it's going to be a bad day for the fly, but it's really fucking hard to do. It turns out that having a battleship that can beat the crap out of everyone else is good, but what is even better is having 500 planes. And the Allies, quite simply, had better planes and better aircraft carriers to launch them from. But Damo, you say... Imperial Japan had a legendary air force. Pearl Harbor, Singapore, the Japanese Zero was the best warplane in World War II, you say. Was it, though? Does the popular conception of the Zero match what actually happened? The Japanese Zero has a bit of an undeserved reputation. For people who aren't as clued into history, who may have dabbled in high school and then mostly consumed pop culture... These people tend to think that the Zero was some kind of Japanese superweapon. That this plane was so far advanced that it was like having an X-Wing. The truth is that the Zero was kind of, sort of, okay. It was fine. It was initially pretty good, and at the start of the war it was unstoppable, but it had some very serious design flaws, and it did get outpaced very quickly. If I were to ask you, dear listener, as someone who, by dint of listening to this show, is way more into history than most people, if I were to ask you how long the Zero dominated the Pacific Theatre, what would you say? How long did the Zero rule the air? Most of the war? A couple of years? 
The Zero was the dominant aircraft of the Pacific Theater of World War II for nine months. That's it. That's the gap between Pearl Harbor and when the Allies actually got serious about dogfighting. By the time of the Guadalcanal campaign in mid-1942, you get aircraft like the Corsair, the Lightning, and the Hellcat dropping more zeros than the Wolf of Wall Street. One Corsair pilot, Lieutenant Robert Hansen, took a little over two weeks to go from no kills to having shot down 20 zeros on his own. He took out more than a squadron's worth of enemy fighters on his own in less than two weeks. The reason that the Zero has this reputation is because at the start of the war, they were reaping an unholy body count. And the entire reason that they were in a position to do that was because of racism. The Allies put all of their shit aircraft in the Pacific Theater. They were fighting two wars, one against the Nazis and the other against Japan. And we all know how good the Germans are at making aircraft, so we need all of our best aircraft to fight the Hun in the air. Plus, London was being bombed at the time, so that kind of skewed England's opinion. But all of the super racist people in power at the time, headed up by the super duper racist Charles Lindbergh, who I will always point out was an actual, literal fucking Nazi, Everyone thought that there was no way that the Japanese were capable of making anything that was the equal of what a white person could make. The Japanese? Those sandal-wearing goldfish tenders? <laughs> Bush flimshaw! So there's no reason to have all your good planes out there in the Pacific because the Japanese can't build anything that can match them. If only we had listened to that boy instead of walling him up in the abandoned coke oven. The Allies worked out pretty quickly that this was massively fucking stupid, and when they did, when the Allies decided to put decent, made-in-that-decade aircraft in the Pacific instead of 20-year-old dog shit like the Brewster Buffalo, when that happened, the Zeros started dropping like flies. Which isn't to say that the Zero was a bad aircraft, it's just massively overrated in history. The Zero is kind of like the Mattia Muraliteran of the World War II aircraft. Pretty good, but not as good as statistics might look. In fact, once the Allies got their act together, the Japanese Air Force was so outmatched that there is a battle known as the Marianas Turkey Shoot. Not the Marianas Battle, the Marianas Turkey Shoot. As in, it wasn't a battle, it was a slaughter. So that is to say that it didn't really matter if Japanese fleets had fighter protection, their planes weren't good enough to keep bombers away so aircraft carriers were always going to beat battleships in the Pacific theater. So it became apparent to the Japanese, pretty much from early 1942 onwards, that it didn't matter how big and scary their battleships were, what was even scarier were aircraft. Having guns that outranged everyone else in the world didn't mean diddly squat when the Allies could just send some planes over from hundreds of kilometers away and drop some bombs on the Yamato and the Musashi and then fly away while everyone on board the battleship helplessly shake their fists in anger. Shake harder, boy! Theoretically, one plane with one lucky bomb could send these battleships to the bottom of the ocean. And since we're in the Pacific, and a lot of this is happening around the Marianas Trench, and shout out to Leap Dave Williams, the bottom of the ocean here is really the bottom of the ocean. It's as low as you can go. 
Now, one lucky plane with one lucky shot could do it, Luke Skywalker style, but more planes with more bombs only increased the chances that one of them would get through and ruin everyone's day. And if you're an Allied commander, how many planes are you willing to sacrifice to sink one or both of the largest battleships ever conceived by man? The correct answer is, of course, as many as it takes. As in the Allies were willing to sacrifice literally thousands of planes, and potentially their pilots too, to sink just one of these leviathans. So the upshot is that as mighty and terrifying as the Yamato and Musashi were, they spent the vast majority of the war in various ports hiding from Allied aircraft. The ships were too valuable to risk losing and too vulnerable to enemy aircraft, and so, for all of their impressive statistics, they were both utterly useless. The biggest battleships ever built were the biggest guns ever built, and their impact on the war was only fractionally above zero. The number, not the fighter. And if you're wondering, zero is an allied term to describe the aircraft, and it came from the actual name of the fighter, which was the Raisin Kanjikesen which is another name that sounds awesome in Japanese and then loses everything when you translate it. Because Raisin Kanjikesen is Type Zero Carrier-Based Fighter Airplane, which does not sound as cool. So Japan are losing the war, and we all know how this goes by now. If you want someone to do a 22-hour breakdown of it, Dan Carlin is your man. So as ever, those single footprints in the sand are where I say, fuck it, Uncle Dan has this one. So Japan have gone from winning the war to getting an utter spanking everywhere all at once all the time. Which means that they can't afford to keep sheltering their big ships anymore. If there ever was a time to use them, well, if there was ever a time to use them, it was in 1942, but it's 1944 now, and everything has gone to shit. So, like the old proverb says, the second best time to bring out your fuck-off battleships is now the Musashi and the Yamato get to finally do what they were intended to do, and they go out looking for a fight. And boy, do they get one. From the 23rd to the 26th of October 1944, we get the Battle of Leyte Gulf, which remains the largest naval battle in the history of man. So obviously, let's not get into it in any detail. Go listen to Uncle Dan again. But the upshot is that the Japanese fleet and the American fleet take the gloves off and decide to duke it out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. The Japanese bring out the biggest fleet that they can muster, headlined by the twins, the Yamato and the Musashi. The Japanese have size on their side. The Americans, though, they have better aircraft and a lot more of them. And the thing that the Japanese were scared of actually happened. The Americans realized pretty early on that Japan had finally sent the big boys out to play. The entire war was spent trying to find the locations of the Yamato and the Musashi. For two reasons. One, they wanted to know where they were so they could stay the hell away from there. These things could and would kick the ever-loving shit out of any American fleet that stumbled into their path without advance warning. So you do not want to be where they are. But reason the second... They wanted to know where these ships were, just in case they had an opportunity to go and send some bombers over and remove them from the map. Well, now they've both showed up at Leyte Gulf. The Americans immediately do their best Admiral Akbar impression. Concentrate all fire on the Super Star Destroyer. 
and the entirety of the American naval air wing flies over to say hi and deliver some presents. A truly unholy amount of bombs and torpedoes were dropped on the Musashi. Wave after wave after wave of aircraft attack her. It's actually interesting to read the battle report. Every three minutes, a new load of aircraft show up to bomb the shit out of this ship, and it lasts for most of a day. This thing had so many bombs dropped on it. And at that rate, the law of large numbers takes over. It doesn't matter if you have the heaviest armor ever put on a ship. When hundreds of bombs are being dropped on it, something has to give. Not every bomb hit. The battle was chaotic, but enough did. The ship started taking water. It listed. Not to worry, though, it's the biggest ship in the ocean. It can take a beating, and it was designed to take a beating, and a beating it has taken. It's taken water, it's on fire, a lot of things are broken, but it's still sailing. It's a testament to just how powerful these two ships were, that they could take that kind of punishment and still be operational. Anything else would have sunk hours ago. Eventually, the Musashi decides it needs to do something. So it loads up its main cannons with what are known as Sanchikidan shells. These are basically like a shotgun shell that's the size of a bus and is also on fire. And the idea was that you aim that vaguely where enemy aircraft are and the explosion should be large enough that anything in that direction for about a mile ceases to exist. That was the idea. In reality... One of the many hundreds of bombs dropped on the Musashi that day had lodged itself in the barrel of one of these massive guns. And nobody noticed this because of the, you know, largest naval battle in history. Everyone's a bit preoccupied. So when they went to fire the biggest gun ever, it exploded. Spectacularly. And the planes kept coming. The bombs and torpedoes kept coming. And they kept chipping away. By 7 p.m., the bow of the Musashi had sunk below the water, and the order was given to abandon ship. By 7.30, it had sunk. What wasn't known until several decades later was that just after it sank, it exploded, so there isn't that much of a wreck to find. But what might be interesting is that the wreck of the Musashi was discovered by none other than Paul Allen, who you might know as the other guy who founded Microsoft, because history is weird. So that's the end of the Musashi. Something very similar happened to the Yamato during the ill-fated Operation Tengo, but that's another very long show for another time. The Japanese, despite having what was a very good, if somewhat overrated, air force, and despite pioneering naval air attacks, despite pulling off the best naval air assault in history at Pearl Harbor, they failed to take into account just how effective planes and aircraft carriers would be in the conflict. And weird but related side note, even their best admiral, the astonishingly gifted Isokuro Yamamoto, he wasn't killed in battle, but rather he was assassinated when the Allies learned of his flight plans and a group of fighter planes ambushed his transport aircraft and shot him down. Planes were that important. The Japanese had bet the farm that everything would be the same as the First World War, and they'd lost. Even when their plan had demonstrably failed a number of times, they just kept plowing on. The sunk cost... Ooh, that's a good unintentional pun. The sunk cost of the Yamato series was a massive cultural blind spot for the Japanese. Even at the very end, right up until the USA created two miniature suns over Japan, 
the Japanese government insisted that they were correct in building big, useless battleships. One of the very last acts of the imperial government was to try and erase all records of the Yamato-class battleships. All blueprints, photos, documentation, receipts, everything to do with the Yamato and the Musashi was destroyed by the Japanese ahead of the Allied occupation, lest these details fall into the hands of the enemy. Even though the enemy had proven that they had no interest in that idea because the idea was dumb. And that's why misinformation about these two battleships is so rampant, it's because Japan tried to purge them from history. So that's why Wilson got it wrong. So, um, yeah, anyway, those are some stories about just how hard it is to stay on the right side of technological development. And I didn't even get into how Betamax was objectively a better player, but VHS won the war. It isn't enough just to develop the next best technology. You need to correctly guess what the next best technology is going to be. And quite often, it's something you couldn't even consider outside of an opium binge. So, uh, yeah, I don't really know what I was intending here, but I'm working on the next main show and I've got a ton of notes that were otherwise going to go to waste, so there we go. And these ideas were sort of just stuck in my brain, and sometimes you just have to do a show to get some spring cleaning done. So there we go. I hope you found this at least a little bit entertaining or informative. There has to be something in there that is going to help you win a meat tray one day. Sayonara. Don't get any on you.